Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. Some audio in this episode may be disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. It's true, you never knew You could live in the heaven today Live with God in a body Who's ruling, reigning, having his way Welcome to episode five of The Truth About True Crime, a podcast series looking at some of the most shocking crimes of our lifetimes through a whole new lens. I'm your host, Amanda Knox. In the previous episode, we heard about Jim Jones's desperation to control his congregation and his own narrative. In this episode, we'll be looking at a day in the life of the Jonestown settlers before things took a dark turn. It's like a group mentality where you, you stop thinking individually. Loudspeakers replay Jones's speeches. But quickly devolved into something that was like Lord of the Flies. It was no longer a matter of if, but when. Here with me today via Skype, we have Jeff Gwynn, author of The Road to Jonestown, Jim Jones Jr., the adopted son of Jim Jones, and Shan Nicholson, director of the docuseries Jonestown, Terror in the Jungle. Jonestown, the promised land, a paradise where the people's temple could put their good work and their good ideas to action and set a socialist example for the world. Jeff, what did the settlers think about Jonestown before they arrived? What did it represent to them? And were they surprised when they arrived? The way Jones first talked about the Promised Land was this was a special place that some temple members would be allowed to go. The purpose being to carve out of this jungle a working farm and ultimately, a few hundred temple members would live there. They would grow crops in this bountiful place. I mean, Jones was describing you drop a seed in the ground and three weeks later, you're picking bananas off the tree that grew. And then the food would be distributed to other hungry countries and other hungry citizens in South America. And most of all, they would finally have a place, have a community effectively isolated from racism and fascism and all the terrible dangers that were presented to the temple every day in America. This was the way to get away, to separate themselves. It's a lovely place with progressive schools. The housing is most adequate, simple structure, aluminum roofs. 
lovely beds and beautiful mattresses and all the food they can eat, uh, recreational sports, uh, uh, games, uh, chess, good film library, movie brought in, swimming, boating, fishing, and a reasonable day's work of work, just an eight-hour day. So this was almost like a Garden of Eden, right? No, it was not like the Garden of Eden. Guyana, for those who don't know, is a small country on the northwestern coast of South America. It consists of a little bit of land along the coast and then endless square miles of the densest, most reptile-infested jungle in the world. The site is so isolated, there's no roads. You can reach it by going in a barge along the South American coast for a day and then down a river. Or six miles away, there's a tiny mining town called Port Kaituma. And they have dug out of the jungle a little dirt landing strip where a small plane, if it pretty much plunged down in a straight line, might be able to land. The jungle is triple canopy. That means the light never really gets down to the ground. I mean, it's constant shadow. The rainwater drips and drips. There's all kinds of mold. You can hear parrots screeching. You can hear hisses and rustlings in the brush, but you can't quite see what's going on in there. There's snakes everywhere, all kinds of bugs. So why did Jones pick the jungle in Guyana if it was so inhospitable? Well, Jones loved it. It was so isolated. The people he sent there couldn't listen to outside sources. Jim Jones would be the only outside voice they could hear. It was a nation with a socialist government. Its population was almost all non-Anglo. And the people spoke English, and that was important. The Guyanese government thought it was great because you've got Americans smack in the middle of disputed territory right on the Venezuelan border. Venezuela might send soldiers in because Guyanese couldn't fight back, but they sure wouldn't want to make the American government mad. And so the deal was struck. So Jones thought this was the perfect location for Jonestown. After he secured the land, what did he have to do to actually make this settlement a reality? So Jonestown was first built by a couple dozen temple members called pioneers, members who had experience in earth moving, farming, construction. They went over with uh, batches of chainsaws to cut down all these trees. And when they set the chainsaws to the trees, the chainsaw blades shattered. The wood was harder than the blade. Poisonous snakes all around them, jungle cats, biting bugs. You can't cut the trees. Jones expected them to do it. They had no choice and yet it couldn't happen. And out of the jungle, drifting in are Amerindians. The Amerindians teach the Jonestown pioneers how to build in the jungle. And it takes a couple years just to clear enough space to start trying to put in a farm. And the problem with that is the jungle dirt isn't compatible to growing most plants. They've got to learn how to cut things up 
use different methods of fertilizer, experiment to see what food will grow and where. It's a terribly complicated process. So it, it was Eden in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> that's, that's a good way of putting it. The pioneers who go over there love it. I mean, talk about getting down to grassroots socialism. It's going it's to be perfect. And they start building space for a couple hundred people. You got up at dawn, you worked as hard as humanly possible, and then even a little bit harder than that. Uh, you ate campfire food. You were exhausted at the end of the day. But after they finished working, you'd sit around and you'd sing songs. And you'd tell each other stories about, well, this happened today or that happened today. And you felt you were, you were doing some great thing. Jim, does that sound about right? Yeah. This original group of people went down and literally you had to burn the jungle and then bulldoze it. And this area of land was seven miles wide, seven miles long. That's the same geography as San Francisco. Well, the, the other thing too, the members of People's Temple were mostly people who'd never mowed a lawn. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand how staggering the accomplishment was, and you wouldn't believe what they did until you would go there and see it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just staggering. Didn't you find that? Yeah. I mean, my God, what a commitment these people made to try to build a new world. The, The Jonestown experiment, if you want to call it that, was not successful. But the Jonestown experience was. Shan, did you get that sense too when you were making the film? It's funny because I was I was just in a mixing session and, and one of the most touching part of the film is is uh, where Jim, you're talking about how much you hated Jonestown. You know, and he was like, I hated the mud, I hated it being sweaty, I hated it, you know, like I just never really liked Jonestown. I'm a city kid. But like when you're with nine hundred people that you love and respect dearly, yes. it, 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 it feels like something else takes over, right? It's not so bad. It's like you're all in this together and this camaraderie in this community, you know, it's the only way that they could get through all of this together, you know? And, and, and when you look at some of the video that was taken, you know, in the good times, you could see the real joy in their face and the pride in their face. Yeah they were building something out of nothing. And it was an incredible feat. Yeah, life in Jonestown for the people who were sent over to build it was immensely rewarding. And you could even call it a kind of paradise until the day came when Jim Jones himself showed up to stay. So let's talk a little bit about when Jones finally did arrive in Jonestown. Why did he go? So suddenly, because of some investigative journalism about everything from Jones's womanizing and drug use to people being forced to give up all their possessions to join the church, to the physical beatings that were handed out during services to members that one way or another had transgressed in Jones's opinion, Jim Jones needs a place to escape for a while. He didn't want to leave the bulk of his followers behind to read the stories that would point out all the terrible things he'd been doing, so they had to come with him. And so suddenly you've got a situation where there's no room to move, no food to eat. 
people who were completely unprepared to live that kind of life, they had no choice. It start. Go ahead, Shan. No, I mean, I don't think it was ever in the planning of it. It was never meant to be a settlement for more than a couple of hundred people. Um, and when the New West article came out, of course, Jones wanted Jonestown to be the focal point for all of the People's Temple. And so he made all of his followers come to Jonestown, and they were just overpopulated. Why did his members follow him? Well, Jones would come over to visit, then go back to San Francisco and report that it's like the greatest tropical paradise you've ever seen. We ain't going no streets of gold, but we've got 25,000 acres of beautiful grasslands, beautiful virgin territory, lovely fruit that grows wild, every kind of vegetable that grows wild. We don't want to try to get any streets of gold. Nobody can eat gold. He faked pictures. He would say, look what's growing in the fields, and there'd be this picture of Jim Jones in a field and this monstrous melon, you know, or something, some fruit. You know, and he's looking down proudly and smiling. Well, they bought that fruit at a village a few miles away. <laughs> and, you know, everyone would come back and say, oh, it's wonderful. And that would get a lot more members wanting to go, oh, my God, I want to go to a tropical paradise. So what were things like after Jones arrived in Jonestown? Before, if you're there, it's an exciting place. It's exhausting but it's rewarding. There's all kinds of fellowship. Everybody's equal. But when all of a sudden there's a thousand people living in Jonestown breathing down each other's necks, the atmosphere is completely different. Suddenly, in cabins that are supposed to at the most sleep four, up to 12 people are crammed in. Before, where at least you had nice meals with all kinds of meat and vegetables and fruit, now it's mostly rice and watery gravy. Everybody's up at six to start working, no exceptions. You work until six or seven, think about how exhausted you are. And then after dinner, just when you want to go to bed, every night father has you gather in the pavilion and he preaches or talks for two, three, four hours at a time, all about the terrible things going on in the outside world. They have no other source of news. Jones tells them things like the first concentration camps for blacks have just been opened in America. The CIA and the FBI can no longer be trusted. They're coming to kill us. They're coming to take our children away. How do you suppose I've been able to survive with all the conspiracy and fascist pigs that have been on our backs? When the CIA tried to overthrow us, Russia told them that they were watching us. And that caused the CIA to lay off of our ass and the governments too. The only people that are venturing in here coming in from Venezuela. Conspirators that are paid assassins, are kidnappers. And so finally, when they get to bed, maybe at one o'clock, loudspeaker systems replay Jones's speeches. They can't get away, they can't rest, and soon you're so exhausted, you can hardly think, which is exactly what Jim Jones wants. So once Jones arrives, the physical living conditions become a lot worse, and Jones creates this paranoia. He spreads this fear about imminent danger, and people begin losing trust in each other. Jeff, can we talk about that? Jones always, this wasn't anything new from the time of his church back in Indianapolis, he always wanted members to inform if another member 
wasn't doing this or was doing that and shouldn't. Again, that's another way of keeping control. Now father is right there and he wants people to tell him right away. If you see something that's wrong, if somebody's doing this, if somebody isn't doing that, that's when the informing starts, when people can't start trusting each other. Tom thinks he was pumping him to try to get something on him. Why? That was a that was a long time when we was in the bush. What are, he he said? What are, since you always get in trouble? He said, let me ask you this question. He said, um, if I keep on doing this and saying I want to go back, what do you think they'll do to me? And we was talking. I asked, and I asked him. I said, do you like? I said you hate that, huh? And he said, and he didn't answer me. And I said, why don't you just come on and answer me? And and he he wouldn't answer me. Do you think people wanted to leave? Now remember, they don't have any money, individually. Jones has taken all their passports. There's approximately 150 miles of wild jungle between them and being able to get to Georgetown, the capital of Guyana, which is the only place they can try to get to the U.S. Embassy. Jones always yells during his sermons, you know, we paid for you to get here, but we won't pay one fucking penny for you to leave. You know, if you want to leave, there's the jungle, start walking. So there's this isolation that's both philosophical. They're there, they still want to believe in the cause. And very practical. If you try to run, you may not get through that, well, you won't get through that jungle alive. So you don't have any choice. You stay, you endure. And since you're staying and enduring, there's father and, you know, you may as well believe in him because if you don't, you're out here and you're suffering for nothing. I can assure you, gentlemen, we are not going to trust your word about whether you're going to travel anymore or not. I can assure you, you will not get the chance to meet on a night and agree to commit conspiracy against this movement. I can assure you, you won't walk one goddamn inch. I can assure you of that. At a certain point, there came to be these things called white nights in Jonestown. And during these white nights, people would inform on each other in the good and the bad. Was this community policing a mutual accountability? Was this like hive mind, like we all must be aware of each other and we all must be aware of our contribution or not to this space? Like why was that important to Jonestown was it a survival mechanism or was it an extension of Jones's own paranoia? So the white knights were never intended for people to inform on each other. That was the daily thing. The white knights were emergency meetings called usually in the middle of the night when Jones would announce that enemies were about to strike, you know, that we were, we were all about to be slaughtered. The United States government, the Marines are closing in on us, or the CIA or hired killers. You know, the sense of paranoia he built at the White Knights, it was his solution to keep absolute control of them. Shan, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it, it started off trying to keep things in order, but quickly devolved into something that was more sort of in kind of with Lord of the Flies. How about, how, about, how about going to the box tonight with the frog? Dad, um... How about the frog? 
truthfully. Why don't you get the frog? Why don't you put your hand in there with the frog? Yeah. Come on, Willie boy. Put your hand in there. Put your hand in there. Willie boy. Put your hand in there. Put your hand in there, Willie boy. We might as well be free from you. Nobody else see it. Nobody else see it. Thank you, Billy. I told you to, right? Yes. Dad, when you're talking about being a crazy. Got no problem. It's your problem. You touch a frog, you're dead. You can take anything. How about Willie? How about Willie? Want to touch a frog tonight, Willie? You punk, you goddamn gangland punk. You've caused us trouble week after week, month after month. Got my blood pressure boiling, punk. A group mentality where you, you stop thinking individually and you start thinking as a group. I think I still have a right to my own opinion. Christine, you're only standing here because he was here in the first place. So I don't know what you're talking about, having an individual life. Your life has been extended to the day that you're standing there because of him. Uh, the isolation between people was really just because, you know, the, it was it was the one-upsmanship, right? It was it was how do you um, appeal more to the to the planning commission or to the father? So things in Jonestown are devolving rapidly and spinning out of control for Jones. What about back in San Francisco? Was the pressure mounting there too? Yeah, so you've got now new outside pressure, like concerned relatives. They decided that they would try to ramp up the pressure on Jones, uh, in part by marching outside People's Temple in San Francisco and with the press, you know, there to witness it, uh, demanding better communication and some kind of proof that their relatives were in Jonestown who wanted to be there. The U.S. embassy's getting all these requests, but the State Department just decides, look, we can't risk being sued for interfering with freedom of religion. You know, unless there's just something that's out and out obvious, we're going to have to go ahead and just leave these people alone. Except one guy decided not to. Congressman Ryan listened to the concerned relatives. Who was he? Well, Leo Ryan, congressman from the Bay Area, was a great caring congressman. He had a great record of being cooperative with his constituents. And a member of People's Temple uh, died under somewhat mysterious circumstances. And uh, the man's father came to Ryan and said, look, you know, this is terrible things are happening. And then Ryan continued to hear from concerned relatives, and so he got the idea that he would go over to Jonestown as part of a congressional investigative committee and personally see conditions there. And if anyone was being held against their will, they would escort them out. Leo Ryan, a congressman, that's different in Jim Jones's mind than just some embassy officials, some lower level staffers. Jones feeling more and more cornered. He's running out of support back in the States. The money from donations was drying up. Time is running out. Yeah. And so as he grows in paranoia, he needs his followers to prove that they completely believe in him. His solution, again, was to test them. They were told that, look, there's a, there's a drink here. You know, at a specific white night that 
there we're going to have have to drink this it's poison we're all going to die but it's not suicide we're making a gesture and everyone needs to do this he's testing them he wants to see if it will work and at the white night where he calls for this most of the people cooperate not all but most it's only after that that jones orders the jonestown physician to order several pounds of cyanide it's at this point where jones has decided they're isolated in the jungle he's probably not going to be able to get back to san francisco he's gone to various communist and socialist embassies in georgetown seeking asylum even north korea turns him down Russia says, well, well, we'll have to think about it. These things take time. To Russia. You think Russia's going to want us with all this stigma? We had, we, we had some value, but now we don't have any value. Jones is already at some point thinking the moment will come when we're at the end some grand gesture so people will at least remember his name forever. At this point, he no longer sees himself as, as a shepherd guarding a flock. He sees himself as a general leading soldiers into war, and in war, soldiers' lives have to be sacrificed. It's gonna happen from the moment there was that white knight and the drinking of the supposed poison, it was no longer a matter of if, but when. As long as his life is hope. That's my faith. Well, someplace that hope runs out because everybody dies. I haven't seen anybody yet didn't die. And I like to choose my own kind of death for a change. I'm tired of being tormented to hell. That's what I'm tired of. Gather in, folks. It's easy. It's easy. To my guest, Jeff, Jim, and Shan, thank you so much for taking your time to be here. Thanks to everyone else for listening, and make sure to tune in to the next episode to hear from Grace Stowen, a defector from People's Temple, about the horrifying events of the days surrounding the massacre. I would always bring up to them that there was a possibility that they could lose their lives. When are the problems? When is this whole thing gonna end? He's going to kill all those people. We didn't commit suicide. We committed an act of revolutionary suicide protesting the conditions of an inhumane world. Find the truth about true crime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.